0: Praise the Lord. Open your Bibles up to Romans chapter 8. I'm not trying to rush anybody, but you can fellowship afterwards. Romans chapter 8. We've been on a series of teachings. And by the way, it's nice to see Jim and Sue back. Welcome back from Florida. We've been on a series of teachings for several weeks in regard to obtaining greater power. And we've talked about the power of the Word, the power of the blood of Jesus, the power in the name of Jesus. And the focus in the last few weeks has been on the power that comes through the Holy Spirit. And to obtain the greater power in our life through the Holy Spirit. I said we wanted to deal in more more depth uh, on the doctrine and teaching of the Holy Spirit. We've talked about the personality of the Holy Spirit. We've talked about the deity of the Holy Spirit. And then we started talking about the working of the Holy Spirit. This morning... I'd like to pick back up on that and I'd like to recover a few things that we said last week. Some of you weren't here and I think it's very, very important that we have the the groundwork properly laid for what we are going to build upon. Last week we said was traditionally by uh, the church what most call Easter, but Easter is a, a pagan idea. But we believe that this is the time of the year when it's what some refer to as Resurrection Sunday. The day in which Christ was risen from the dead. And we've been told by Him to remember that. We've been told by Him to remember His death, burial, and resurrection and to celebrate it in various ways. But... The question this morning that I would like to talk about and get into in greater depth is, what is the reason for the resurrection? What is the purpose of the resurrection? In Romans chapter 8 and verse 11, this is one of the workings of the Holy Spirit. We're told, if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal body by his spirit that dwells in you. And then we're also told in Romans 10 and verse 9 that belief in the resurrection of Christ is essential to salvation. Anyone who denies the resurrection of Christ then denies their Christian faith. It is vital. We need to not only believe that he went to the cross and paid the penalties for our sins, but we also need to believe that he was raised from the dead. And Paul's talking about this in Romans chapter 10 and verse 8 he says, But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart, that is the word of faith which we preach, that if thou wilt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and Believe in thine heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So the question raised again is this. Why is that so important? What is the significance of the resurrection? If you were to ask a lot of people today, what, what... What comes to your mind when it comes to the uh, subject of, like, Easter, for example, using their terminology? What does Easter mean to you? You might find them say, well, it's the resurrection of Christ. If you would ask them to explain why that is so significant, I think you'd find them fumbling around a lot in their words. I was asking some people this week, and I said, well, what is the significance? What is the meaning of Christ's resurrection? And I found various different vague replies and answers. Nothing really concrete. Now if our salvation comes by us believing in the heart that Christ went to the cross and paid the penalty for our sins and was crucified and buried and raised from the dead. And the resurrection is vital to our salvation, like Paul said then shouldn't we, if it's really in our heart, have more meaning to it? Shouldn't it be something more significant to us than just acknowledging that it happened? You'd find where some would just say, if you ask them, well, what is the significance of Easter? What does Easter mean to you? What's the first thing that comes to mind? You might hear them talking about, oh, colored eggs, Easter egg hunts, chocolate rabbits, things of that sort, the devil's done a good job at hiding and deceiving the truth. But what is the significance of the resurrection? Why is it so important? Well, we touched on this last week, and I'm not going to repeat everything that I said, but there are three things that I did say, and I'd like to repeat those three and then move on because I think There's a real deep revelation here that we need to get down into our heart. Why was Jesus raised from the dead? What was the significance of that, of the resurrection? Well, first of all, it was necessary, the Bible says in Romans 4.25, for our justification. Romans chapter 4 and verse 25, let's turn over there. He says, for example, here in the 21st verse, he says, talking about um, having faith for righteousness, the faith of Abraham. He says, now it was not written, we're talking about the faith of Abraham, we can back up a little bit. He says in verse um, 17, as it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations. Of course, he's talking about Abraham. Before him whom he believed, even God who quickens the dead, and calls those things to be not as though they were. Who against hope believed in hope, that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which was spoken, so shall thy be. See, so he was given a promise of something in the future. And he believed in that promise. And he served God and worshipped God and lived by God's word on the basis of what he believed in a future promise. See, we have a future. That's what the resurrection says. The resurrection says there's something after the grave. We have a future ahead of us if we love God, worship Him, serve Him, and obey Him. That's what Abraham did. That's what faith is all about. Some people might say, well, You know, If you ask them, do you believe in life after death? No, I believe as soon as we die, we're just going to the grave. But then others would say, no, I believe there is life after death. But there's no proof of that. You don't have to go up to heaven. You don't have to go down below. There's no proof of that other than by what the Word of God has to say. And that's where Jesus comes in. So it's by faith Abraham was righteous. And he goes on, he talks about this in verse 21, verse 20. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief. Because it took 25 years for him to get that Isaac. And he, But he grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. He ignored the fact that he was 100 years old and Sarah was 90. He ignored that. He endured for 25 years. And being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he, would able, he was able also to perform and therefore was imputed unto him for righteousness. He served God. He obeyed God. He believed that promise in his heart. He did not go by circumstances that were confronted him. There was a little up and down in his walk. We studied Abraham a while back. But the point was that a promise was given that didn't come to pass right away, and yet Abraham was faithful. That's why his name was changed. Now, it was imputed, now this was written for his, not for his sake alone, but also for us, verse 24. That example of the faith of Abraham in receiving a promise and believing it and living accordingly, that was not just a story to be told, but it was also for us to whom shall it be be imputed, that is, righteousness. With we believe on Him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. He was raised for our justification. You see, Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sins. That's why He died. He didn't have to die for Himself. And when He died for His sins, or died for our sins rather, our sins were imputed to him, His righteousness was imputed to us. And the resurrection says, "I have accepted this sacrifice. I have accepted it because the curse of death cannot hold him back. See, the curse of sin was death. In the book of First Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 22, you remember how the God told Adam in the beginning. He said, you're allowed to eat of all the trees in this, in this garden, but there's one tree that's mine. You don't eat of that. You eat of that, and you surely will die. He ate of it. And he put the whole human race under a curse. The book of Hebrews says it is appointed unto all men once to die, and after that, the judgment. And all men have died because of that Adamic curse except one. One did not die because of the Adamic curse, because he was free from the curse. So why did he die? He died to pay the penalty for our sins so that we could be in him and be declared innocent. We could be declared righteous. We could be declared penalty paid. But the proof of that was that he was raised from the dead. Death did not hold him down. He died physically, but... His body was raised again from the dead. He died as a substitute for us. And Paul's emphasizing this in First Corinthians 15 when it comes to the resurrection. This whole chapter is talking about the resurrection. And he says here in verse... Well, we'll pick up in verse 12. If Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, then why do some of you say there is no resurrection? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then your preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. I mean, we may as well let Abraham die for us. We may as well have had Moses die for us. We may as well have had Joshua or David die for us. Because they're still in the grave. They still have not risen. Not, not in the fullest sense. They're present with the Lord, but they're awaiting the full resurrection. But then he goes on to say, "If, For if the dead rise not, then Christ is not risen. But if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain. You're yet in your sins. We're in our sins if Christ is not raised from the dead. But the fact that he's raised from the dead is, is an indication that he did not die because of his sins. He died because of our sins. And God the Father raised him from the dead. As proof that he died as a sacrifice for us and paid the penalty for our sins. Secondly, the resurrection is important because it's the, it's the basis of the gospel. The heart of it's the heart of the gospel. It answers that question that people don't like to raise: What happens to a person when they die? You know, young people don't think about this. They don't raise that question. They're they're young, they're healthy, they're they're vigorous. It's the last thing on their minds. I talked to someone just recently this week. They were telling me about their daughter-in-law and how they profess to be an atheist. And I said, have you ever asked them the question, well, what's going to happen to you when they die? And they said, well, they believe they're just going to go back to the grave and they cease to exist and that's it. So with that kind of mentality, the attitude then is, well, if all that we have is this life, then let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Think about it. I mean if if all we thought we had was this, then wouldn't we want to just start living it up? People sometimes, for example, get a I thought that was mine. Look at this. Happy birthday. People sometimes, you know, will find out they, they, they get some kind of a terminal disease. They go to the doctor and they find out that you've got a brain tumor or you've got pancreatic cancer or you've got this or that. And they'll say, yeah, so what about it, doc? And the, and the doctor said, you have six months to live. So what do they do? They make a bucket list. I mean, have you ever seen that movie, The Bucket List? It was a story of two men that were told by the medical profession, that they only had a short time to live. So before they kicked the bucket, they came up with a list of things that they wanted to do. Now one man couldn't afford it, and the other man could. So the man that could afford it, said, I'm going to take you with me, to the man that couldn't afford it. And they went all over the world, doing all these different things that they wanted to do. Because they only had a few months to live. So... That's what the movie was all about, the story was all about, was the quote the bucket list because, you know, they went up into the mountains and uh, they jumped out of airplanes and they raced cars and all the fun things in this life because they only had six months to go. Then then one of them found out that the doctor made a mistake or he got cured or whatever so he didn't go as fast as the other one did. But the point was in that movie that if you only had a short time to live, you want to live it up. If there's no life after this life, Paul said, we are of all men most foolish, then let's live it up. What are we doing here in church? We don't want to do that. We could be out having fun on a Sunday morning. What are we doing here listening to a guy uh, preach at us all the time? What are we doing uh, overcoming? And what are we doing doing all the things that the Christian has to do in regard to suffering? If this is all that there is, then let's give it up. Well, the young don't think about it. The young don't raise that question because they're young. But when you start getting older, then you really start to think about it. My, um, I have a relative, for example, that's up around 80 years old now. 80 plus, really. And you can tell by the emotions that are shown when we go to visit and we go to leave, you can tell by the emotions that are shown, the hugs, the tears, and so forth, that they're afraid that they may not have too much longer. And so they kind of express that emotion certainly much more than they would have in their 40s. Jesus is our hope. Jesus says to us, There is something after this life. There is life after death. That's why the resurrection is so important. It answers that question. The Bible says that we're made up of three different parts. Body, soul, and spirit. Body is your flesh and bone. Spirit is the life that comes from God. God took the dust of the earth and He breathed in it. Spirit. And Adam became a living soul person and I've always raised that question. what about okay we have a body and we have life that, that makes that body live that spirit I mean if you take the uh, spirit out of an animal dead. but what about us who were created in the image of God, we have a personality. We're all a little bit different. We think, we talk. We're rational beings. We're we, we all we're different. Well, that's that's the us. Is there life after death? Well, the resurrection says yes, there is. And if we receive Christ as our Savior, then there's a glorious hope because when we get over on the other side, what is awaiting us is bliss. If we're faithful here. But if we're not, then what awaits on the other side is something else. It's a sure thing that there's something over there. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27. It's a sure thing because Christ was raised from the dead, that there is life after death, and something awaits us. Hebrews 9.27, Paul said it like this. He said, it is appointed unto all men once to die, and after this, the judgment. See, people don't like to think about, when they think about the resurrection of the Christ, they like to think of something positive, something flowery. Well, if you're a Christian and you think of the resurrection of Christ, you think in terms of he made it and I'm in Him. God the Father brought Him back into His kingdom and I'm in Him. And whatever He has, I have because I'm a joint heir. If He lives, I live. Because I've made Him my Lord and Savior. I've received the offering that He paid for my sins. He's justified me. So He's our hope. He's our joy. That resurrection is something that uh, because He lives, we look we have no fear in death. We look forward to going on to the other side. That's why sometimes Christians will get so discouraged and down, and sometimes they'll hear, you'll hear them say and express that, I just want to go home. Because they know over there there's something positive. I mean, that doesn't mean that we should think about committing suicide, because then we'd be violating one of the Ten Commandments. When would you have a chance to repent? Hello? You know what I'm saying? God's called us to a life of trial and testing suffering. But when the believer goes home, we rejoice. We will worship and thank the Lord. We don't, we don't, you know, sometimes I remember where sometimes people felt that at some funerals that we had, we sang worship songs to the Lord. And some kind of interpreted that like we were taking it too lightly. The passing of one person on to, into another realm. We weren't really taking it lightly. We were thanking God because we knew they were in a better place. And that's what our faith says. But to the ungodly, they like to hide the resurrection. They like to hide the idea of Christ being raised from the dead. Because not only does it go with the positive for the believer, but look what he said there. He said, it is appointed unto all men once to die, but after this, The judgment. The resurrection says to the unbeliever, you have an appointment with me. That's what God says. You have an appointment with me. Every single person has an appointment with God. And the resurrection is something that should remind them of that. That they've got an appointment. Because after this life, we all have to answer for what we've done in this life. And that's why it's so popular to cover it over and don't think about it. Death is just kind of a ugly thing that people don't like to think about. Look at Acts chapter seventeen it's not a It's not a happy thing when a person dies. I don't mean that, but why should we try to hide it? It is something that is a reality in life. We hear all the time to whereby different things that are of a serious nature and reality in life, we hear the world always talking about ways to avoid the calamities. The way to have a long physical life, the, the way to avoid heart disease is eat certain foods and exercise. Uh, the way to avoid cancers, avoid certain types of foods and behaviors and so forth. The way to avoid AIDS, for example. They talked about uh, using condoms if you're a homosexual to avoid the contact. They're always looking for some kind of preventative medicine for calamities and problems that are down here. What's the preventative medicine for death? Hello. It is to make sure that you're right with Jesus Christ. No other no other individual ever died and was raised from the dead. In Acts seventeen thirty one, Paul is ridiculing and talking to the Greeks who have all different kinds of gods that they made out of gold and silver and art and wood and pictures. And he makes this statement to them. He says, For as much then, verse 29, as we are the offspring of God, then we ought not to think of the Godhead as like unto something that's gold or silver or stone or graven by art or man's device it's amazing the church has followed has totally ignored that first and followed after it the Greek Orthodox Church has all different kinds of icons and paintings the Roman Catholic Church has all kinds of gold and silver and stone and it isn't just them it's offsprings from them many of them and what does God say about it? the times of this ignorance God winked at. In other words, he, he was long suffering and he let it go by. But now he commands all men everywhere to repent. He says, Repent of that stuff. Because he has appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he ordained whereof we are we have been given an assurance unto all men. An assurance of what? We've been given an assurance that, yes, the appointment is made. You have an appointment with me. I did some taxes here recently. I did mom and I's first, and I did it electronically online. about doing everything online anymore. And after I went through the tax cut thing and did all the taxes and all that and fired it off to IRS, I got an email and it said, Confirmation, your taxes have been received. The IRS received them, and they were reviewing them, and then they reviewed them, and we got a little bit of a refund back, but they reviewed them, and everything went well. Well, Elliot asked me here a couple weeks ago, he said, would you help me do my taxes? And I said, yes. Yeah. So we we went out on one of these free sites. Now, it was still reputable, but we went on a free site, filled out all the taxes, and sent it off. And got no reply back. I thought, man, I got my reply a lot quicker. I wonder why we didn't get his reply. So we waited a week because it said something about it might take as long as a week. We waited a week. Still didn't get it. So last night I sat down. I called him in. He came over and and I said, I don't know, there's something not right here. So we went back through all the steps and I had printed it and I had saved it, but I I forgot to hit the send button. So I sent it off. And within, he walked into his bedroom. Now, that only takes like for me walking to the outside door. He walked into his bedroom, checked his email. It was already there. It's been confirmation it was sent. And within an hour or two, it was confirmation it was received by the IRS. We got a confirmation that they had, that they had received something. Well, the resurrection of Christ is a confirmation. It says... Jesus has paid the penalty for the sins of this world, and I have received that. Uh, it is a confirmation that he's alive. It's a confirmation that there's life after death. It's a confirmation that you and I have an appointment. That's what God says to everybody, no exception. You and I have an appointment. Thank God we won't have to answer for our sins because Jesus already did. But we're going to have to answer for what we did in this life since coming to Christ. But all those, they can deny it as much as they want. They have an appointment with God. And just to say, well, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in that. I don't believe that will happen. Okay, fine. You don't believe it. Either you're right and I'm wrong, or I'm right and you're wrong. It's one way or the other. It comes down to a matter of faith. That's the bottom line. Now, do you want to take that chance? I'm not going to take that chance. I'm going to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead as a confirmation that there really is something after this life. And that my Maker who said, I've made you, and i made you to serve me, and if you don't serve me, or if you do serve me, we're going to discuss your life, when you come over here back into this realm again. And every single person is going to have to answer for that. And that's what the resurrection says. It's not only a positive thing for the believer that we have life after death, but it is also a, a sign, it is also a confirmation to the unbeliever that there is life after death. And you you and I have an appointment. It's called the Great white throne. And so there is a time in which all men will have to answer to their Maker. Look at Romans chapter 14 and verse 10. When people ask you the question, what does resurrection mean? Or you ask them, and they say, well, I don't know for sure. You tell them, first of all, you were born in sin and as a sinner had no way to pay your debt. So God came down here himself and took on humanity to whereby he could pay the debt for you and confirmation and proof that that debt was paid and received because he was raised from the dead. But secondly, not only was it confirmation that his sacrificial work was accepted, it also is a token and a sign that there's something more than this life. And that is proof that there's an afterlife. And in that afterlife, the only one that ever made it over there in that afterlife, and in the full resurrection sense, has said in his word that we all one day are going to have to stand before our Maker, every one of us. And we're going to have to be judged. And you can either be judged for your sins, or you can either be, or you can be judged for whether or not you were faithful and yielding unto the Holy Spirit in this life. Romans 14, Paul is saying here, it's a chapter of, why don't you quit judging your brother and focus your judgment upon yourself? You know, Jesus said it like this. He said, why behold the sliver in your brother's eye and you don't see the beam in your own? That was in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, Paul said it here in Romans 14, one whole chapter, he is trying to get us to understand that different Christians are going to be at different levels of growth. Some are strong in area and some are weak in another area. But everyone is going to have to answer to God for what they've done with their life. So don't focus so much on where that person's at. Focus on yourself. Don't play that, false in others I can see, but praise the Lord, there's none in me game. So in Romans 14, he makes this this comment. He says, verse 8, whether we live, we live unto the Lord, or whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live or we die, we are the Lord's. Whether it's here in this life or in the next, we belong to Jesus. For to this end Christ both died and rose and revived that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. So why do you judge your brother? Why do you set it not, your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Every believer is going to have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Every unbeliever is going to have to stand before a Revelation 20 throne, which is called a great white throne, And in all cases, books will be opened. There are books recorded on what I've done with my life since coming to Christ. There are books recorded for what you've done since coming to Christ. And there are books recorded with what men and women have done since the day they were born. If that sins have not been washed away, they're going to be judged according to their disobedience on those books. It's a fearful thing to think about. I can see why men try to cover it over with chocolate and colored eggs. I can see why. I can see why they try to hide it when it comes to funerals, to hide the truth. Because one day, we breathe our last. And if there is life after death, what's that like? And the one who says there is life after death, and it's been proven because I made it, says there's a life of bliss to those who serve me, but there's a life of eternal punishment to those that don't. He went on to say, when he said, we will all stand before the judgment seat, he says, as it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee will bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to me, So then every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. Every one. So we all one day are going to have to stand before our Maker and answer for our life. And that's what the resurrection points to. There is life after death. And thirdly, it is a vindication of Christ. It was vindication because He predicted His death and burial and resurrection. He said, I'm going to be put to death and I'm going to be put in a tomb and on the third day I'm going to raise from the dead. John chapter 2 and verse 19. John chapter 10 and verse 14. Now if a man says something, people will hold him to what they say. I mean, there was a a big baseball player one time, you know, that when he went to the plate, he'd proclaim something. He'd stick out his bat. Like that. And what he would say is, home run coming. And the media would just get all frenzied about it, you know. Let's see if the babe can do it again. I remember one of my boys was in Little League one time. And, he was ornery in those, well, he's ornery now, but he was young and ornery then. He'd take globs of bubble gum and put it in his mouth and chew it up so that when he went to the plate to play baseball, it'd stick out the side of his mouth, you know, because he wanted to be a big leader. And we give him a flat top, he had a flat top, and and he just looked like, you know, that ornery little flat top kid. And I can remember one time we were watching this game, and he stands up at the plate He's, he's what, only eight, nine, ten years old, very young. He holds the bat out toward out the outfield. And the other the other side, oh, they just that was it, man. I mean, he is just intimidating because he's just said something that is intimidating. When Jesus said, I'm gonna be crucified, put in the grave, and I'm coming out in three days. That was intimidating. Who could ever say such a thing? The religious leaders, they hated that so much that when He was crucified, they wanted to seal the stone. And after He was raised from the dead and the heavy persecution came upon the church, you know what it was all about? The resurrection. Because if He was raised, that means there's hope for us to be raised. And what did he do to get raised? All answers those questions about is there life after death? Is it going to be a good life? How do I attain to it? The things that no man knows. So it was vindication. Because he said, I'm going to be crucified, put to death, and raised from the dead. And so when he was crucified and put to death, Men sat back and said, "All right, now, let's see what happens. If he would have remained in the grave, we could say that he'd be nothing more than a shyster. Nothing more than a religious shyster. He said one thing, but it didn't come to pass. I mean, I'm not going to follow some of these cults like in Seventh-day Adventism and in the Mormonism. Joseph Smith made proclamations about things that never came to pass. Seventh-day Adventists, they were following a man who predicted the coming of the Lord several times, and it never happened. Some of them are just foolish enough to keep on following the man. But what he predicted was wrong. Jesus said, I'm going to be crucified, put to death, and on the third day, I'm being raised from the dead. And on the third day, he was raised from the dead. The followers of him, they just they just were timid and shy and afraid. And all of a sudden, after the resurrection, they were bold. They were strong. They proclaimed the message of Christ even to their death. They were led away to the slaughter like sheep. What made the difference? They were hiding before. Now they're not hiding. They're coming right out in the open. And they more or less, when they said, if you don't be quiet, we're going to put you to death, they said, we can't shut up. It's the truth. We're not going to hide it. What brought that boldness on? Their resurrection. And the resurrection vindicated that Jesus was whom he said that he was. See, the prophecies of old, like in Psalm 16, The prophecies of old declared that the Messiah would be put to death, but the grave couldn't hold Him. Psalm 16 and verse 10 says, For thou wilt not leave my soul in Sheol, really, not hell. Sheol is the Hebrew word for the grave, for the realm of the dead. For thou wilt not leave my soul In the realm of the dead, neither will thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. If you look at your Bibles, you'll see a little star beside it, because it was messianic. And Peter went on to quote that very thing in Acts chapter 2, in the emphasis of the resurrection. So because Christ declared what was going to happen when he died and it came to pass, It proved that everything, if he could take the hardest thing and it would vindicate, and it would prove out to be true, then anything lesser than that is proof that it likewise was true. And it is. Every word that he said is true. He said in Matthew chapter 7 when he was preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, and he laid out there some very great, profound truths, some very practical truths on how we were to live. You might say that it is a, a, a complete, fuller revelation of like the Ten Commandments in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It contains so much depth that even religious leaders have studied it and, and were in awe. Gandhi once said about the Sermon on the Mount, he, he basically said that in itself, if you, lived, if you believed that and lived that, you'd have a righteous life. What Jesus said after he had gone preaching this tremendous sermon was he said, Whosoever hears these sayings of mine, verse 24, and does them, I will liken unto him as a wise man which built his house upon a rock. The rains descend, the floods came, the winds blow, they beat on the house, but it didn't fall because it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that hears these things of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon a sand. The rains descend, the floods came, the winds blow, and and they beat upon the house and it fell for great was the fall. When he got done, the people were astonished at his teachings and what he said. I brought this up last week. What's what and who is your rock? Who are you building your life upon? You see, this really opens up another area of the Holy Spirit's work. And that's why I kind of covered that before I got into this. And I'm I'm not going to go another hour, so don't get afraid. But this foundation needs to be laid. Because you see... There's a difference between becoming a Christian and being a Christian. Becoming a Christian is an instantaneous thing. But being a Christian is a life. It's a lifestyle. Becoming a Christian is a work of the Spirit that occurs instantaneously when you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior and you're born again. Look at John chapter 3. John chapter 3 talks about how that it is the Holy Spirit who imparts the new birth to us. He does that work in us. If you look at John chapter 3, the question was being raised about salvation. It says there was a man of the Pharisees called Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, and he came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we know thou art a teacher and come from God. No man can do these miracles except God be with him. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless we're born again. Well, Nicodemus, not understanding that, said how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter in the second time into his mother's womb to be born? I mean, how were we born? Our mother and father procreated in God's plan. And I was carried in my mother's womb for nine months and I came out. So how can I be, how can I be born again? How can I get be put back in my mother's womb? That's what he's saying. And Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of the water and of the Spirit... He cannot enter into the kingdom of God. We're born of the water. That's our parents' birth. When the water breaks, the baby comes out. Right? But the other, he says, we're born of the Spirit. So it's a work of the Spirit. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Marvel not that I said you must be born again. The wind blows where it wants to. And thou hear the sound thereof, but you can't tell from whence it's coming or where it's going, so is everyone that's born of the Spirit. Now when he says here that when the wind blows, it it listeth where it goes where it wants. You hear it, but you don't know where it's coming from. You know, he is not just giving the analogy here of wind blowing in trees. Because he can't explain how a man is born again. If you think that, your understanding of what he's saying here is shallow. Because what he's saying here when he says the wind blows, he's really talking about the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will go wherever he wants to go. And he will move upon people And He will give them repentance and He will give them faith. He will call them and He will draw them and they will get born again. It is a work of the Spirit that becomes, that takes place. Becoming a Christian is something that instantly occurs when we receive Christ as our Savior. We are born again. We are changed. We'll talk about that later. What effects that are there. But a man that's born again knows that his old life has been the penalty paid for it, and now he wants to live a new life. There is a desire and a new heart that is planted from within, and he wants to live a changed life. The man or the woman that goes to church that says, I'm a Christian, but doesn't want to live a changed life, doesn't want to live a life in which he is submitting to God and obeying His Word, it's not a born-again experience. He's still wanting to do what he wants to do. The foolish man does what he wants to do. He hasn't yet learned what kind of how what kind of road that goes on. He's as dumb as Balaam's ass. He's just going to keep hitting his head against the wall. The way there are the ways of man that seem right, but the ends are what they are—the ways of death. And when a man comes to the place to whereby he is so broken, he is so humbled. He is so frustrated with himself that he says, That is it. I, I have done nothing but totally destroyed and ruined my life. God, help me. That's when God says, Now we're talking. Now we're going to get somewhere. Now I can mold and shape and I can start working with you and I can do something with your life without you jumping off the wheel all the time. The potter's wheel was an illustration in the Old Testament and how that God wanted to mold and shape and conform to what the potter wanted. And when the clay didn't want to respond, that's what Paul was saying. Can't the potter, potter take that clay and do with it what he wants? Pitch it off and into the garbage and say, I'm going to give me a new lump. I'm going to work with it and mold it and shape it. And that's us, the Gentiles. But the point we're saying here is that this is a work of the Spirit. When a man or a woman receives Christ as their Savior, the Holy Spirit gives them a new heart and they become a new creation in Christ Jesus. It's an instantaneous thing. And how does it occur? Well, he told you here, and it is a work of the Spirit that occurs. But if you look over at first Peter one twenty three, this isn't a contradiction, but an explanation. First Peter chapter one and verse twenty three. Did you all see in John three where we are born of the Spirit? He says we're born of the flesh, but we're also born of the Spirit. And look what it said here in first Peter one twenty three. He says, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible seed, by the Word of God which liveth and abideth forever. By the Word of God. You see, you can't separate the Holy Spirit from the Word. People try to do that. People try to divorce the Word and the Spirit. The Scriptures and the Spirit. They try to divorce that. When the Scriptures say you're to do something, a certain a certain thing, and people don't want to do that because it's too costly. Invariably, I've heard them say, well, the Holy Spirit didn't tell me that. The Holy Spirit told you that right here in Scripture. You can't separate the Scripture and the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit inspired the Scripture. And the two are one. We're born again, he says, by the Word of God. No, he says we're born again by the Spirit of God. No, he says we're born again by believing the Word of God. No, Jesus said we're born again by the Spirit of God. It's not a contradiction. They are the same. And until we get get that in our heart, we're not going to have the power of God coming through us as it should be, because too often... We're picking and choosing at the Scriptures that tell us how to live. He said, I don't pick and choose. I don't pick and choose, people say. Yet I just got done reading in Acts 17 where God said, I don't want any gold. I don't want any silver. I don't want any stone. I don't want any graven art. I want repentance for that stuff. And there are very few churches today that don't have their pictures somewhere of what is supposed to be Jesus. That don't have their golden statues or stone statues somewhere of what is supposed to be Jesus. you hear what I'm saying? We pick and choose at the Scripture and, and use that as an argument to say, well, the Holy Spirit told me. No, the Holy Spirit tells us right here what to do. And if we can't live it perfectly, he says, I'm a long-suffering, gracious, patient God. And I'll work with you on that. I'll help you on that. I understand that you're weak. I understand that you're a human being. And I'll help you. I'll work with you. I'll teach you. I'll direct you. I'll guide you. I'll empower you. This is something that we'll do over a lifetime process. The Bible says, God's commandments are not grievous. Jesus said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. It's not like he's locking us down to perfection instantaneously or we'll never make it in. No, we instantaneously become a Christian, but we be a Christian over a lifetime. And if we really believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, that's proof that there's life hereafter. And if there is life hereafter, and when he predicted his own death, and by that, over it all came to pass, then what he said must be true. And if what he said was true, we better study it and find out what he said, so we can make it like him. And that's the whole point. Who's your rock? You see, the resurrection was a vindication of Christ, because he predicted his death, and that really declared him to be the rock. Because now, as a Christian, we we build our life upon a foundation. And if the foundation's not sure and strong, then it'll fall. But if the foundation is sure and strong, it won't fall. As a Christian, we build our life upon the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and all that is contained. And He's our rock. I raised this question last week. Who's your rock? Who's, whose advice do you follow? Do you follow the advice of Jesus or do you follow the advice of friends? You know, before I got born again, I had some friends that I followed their advice And they were always trying to get me to do this, that, and the other. And you know what it did? It just got me in nothing but trouble. And I got a new friend. Her name was Beverly. (laughs) And I tell you what, she did a great job of pulling me away from those old friends that were bad news. I went from the guys to a wife that had some morals and scruples even though she wouldn't be born again. She still had a lot more morals and scruples than I did. And when she got born again, she really got some morals and, and truth. Because it was her life and testimony that opened my eyes to see that I was a sinner. And then I became one that said, Lord, help me. And opened up my hands and arms and He came into my life and took over and I can remember as we moved to one location Dolan was just a little tight I can remember my old friends coming over to the house one time and knocking on the door and they wanted to just have their old party life and I said well you guys can come on in but I want all the booze and everything leave it out on the porch I'm not living that kind of life anymore in that right road and I said, Come on in, we're gonna watch the Ten Commandments on TV. <laughs> you know what? I didn't have any friends anymore. You know what? I'm glad. I'm glad. Because I got a whole new set of friends that didn't mislead me and take me down the wrong path. Because I turned around. I repented. I said, I want to I want a new life. I don't want to play both sides of the fence. Jesus was my rock. Some people, their rock is the educated, wise world of science. Like the one I was talking to with Nate the other day, that people are just so convinced that there is no God because, uh, because science hasn't proven it. <laughs> science has been disproven so many times. It's not funny. So take your chance. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. And if the grave is it, that's it, you're done, then fine. You're right and I'm wrong. But what's it really cost me if I'm wrong? It really hasn't cost us as much as the early church did when it cost them their own life. Oh, it's cost us some dying out of the self. And it's cost us some time and some money. And cost us some things. But it's really the cost of being a Christian, has it really been that bad? Think about it. Man, I I have no regrets of following Jesus. No regrets whatsoever. I don't miss all the garbage that I got into before. People make Hollywood their rock. Politicians their rock. Family their rock. Sometimes it's family. Well, you know, because family sounds like a good thing, family becomes the standard that they live by. But if your family is not a good Christian family, then that's not the standard you want. We should never divorce the Spirit from the Word or the Word from the Spirit because they are one. And the Scriptures are to be our guide on how we are to live. Salvation comes by the Holy Spirit opening up our eyes to the Scripture to see and believe upon what the Scripture says. It's not some special revelation. It's the Holy Spirit opening up our heart and eyes to see that what God says is true. In Romans 10, that's what he was talking about when it came to salvation. He wasn't talking about some special revelation like the church has come up with today called a rhema. In Romans chapter 10, when he says... How can a man be saved? Verse 6, he says, Say not in thine heart, who shall descend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who shall descend into the deep to bring up Christ again from the dead? We don't have to go check out His grave. And we don't have to somehow get transported up to heaven to see, yes, there He is. He's sitting there on the throne. I see Him, so He was raised. Or plan a trip to Israel to whereby we can go over and find some archaeological dig site to whereby they say, here it is, Christianity's a bunch of phony baloney because we found the tomb of Christ. We don't need to have some kind of proof that we can see, taste, smell, or hear. He says, but what saith it? The word is nigh thee, it's in thy mouth, and it's in thy heart. That is the word of faith that we preach. For if if thou shalt confess with the mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says... For the Scripture says, for the Scripture says, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. When we believe and act upon Scripture, we're believing and acting upon the work of the Spirit. You don't have to have some special feeling to get saved, you just simply believe what the Scriptures say that whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And you believe it, and you do it, and if the Holy Spirit is the one that has opened up your heart to see that this is the way of salvation. Salvation from what? What do we need saved from? If there's no life after death. What do we need saved from? But well, if there is life after death, and those that are not receiving Christ as their Savior are going to go to hell. We need saved from hell. We need saved from eternal punishment. Don't we? Yes, we do. And as resurrection says that. But we don't need something special. We don't need a special revelation. We simply believe the Scripture as it is written. We call upon the name of the Lord and it's a done deal. Somehow the Holy Spirit takes that Scripture, takes that Word that is in our heart, and we are born again. God the Father spoke the Word. We're told in Genesis 1. And the earth came into being. The Spirit went forth and brought it to pass. Look at Psalm 33 and verse 6. I'm just going to read a couple things and I'm going to close. Psalm 33 and verse 6 says, By the Word of the Lord were the heavens made... And all the host of them, by the breath of His mouth. By the breath of His mouth. What he's really saying here, because breath is in the Hebrew, spirit. By the breath of His mouth, by the words what were spoken, the heavens were made. The spirit went forth with the word. Now the Bible says in Second Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is God breathed in the Greek. Meaning that He moved upon them supernaturally to record everything that He had said in a flawless way to whereby the Scriptures are the same as God speaking it. That's why we've got to get rid of this attitude, this idea that, well, I know what the Bible says, but you won't receive the full power of God in your life if you nitpick at the Word of God. That's what we're saying. We've got to get in our hearts that this is our, this is what God has given unto us as our standard to live by and build upon that foundation. God and His Word, God and the Spirit are one. Turn over to James chapter 1 and verse 21. I'm going to look for a way to close. And when I come back, I'm going to take a little vacation next week, so make sure you show up for Zachary. He's got something special for you. And when I get back, I'm going to, I want to talk about what it means to be born again. But in John chapter 1, or James chapter 1, rather, and verse 21, the Spirit and the Word are one. And so the work of the Spirit is going to be when He opens up your heart to see that the Scriptures are meant for you to live and you lay down those arguments of self and simply by faith trust the Lord and do it. He says here in James one twenty one. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. The word that we read, the word that is preached, the word that is spoken is able to save your souls. If we lay aside all, first of all, filthiness. Filthiness here is is talking about all kinds of immorality and un sexual uncleanness and you know the all the things that go with filth and superfluity of naughtiness. you know what naughtiness is? What do you say to your children when they get mouthy, lippy, arrogant, stubborn. What do you say to them? <laughs> you don't say don't quit being naughty. Okay, he says then, don't be naughty. Okay, well I used to say, I'm sorry I'm not of Generation X, but I used to say, don't be naughty. Naughtiness is rebellion. Naughtiness is talkback. Naughtiness is stubbornness. Naughtiness is arrogance. And superfluity of naughtiness means that you are exceedingly rebellious, arrogant, nasty you have to lay it aside. You have to get rid of the attitude to whereby you don't care what the Bible says. You want to do this or you want to do that. You have to get rid of that attitude. And when you get rid of that attitude, the power of the Holy Spirit always goes forth with the Word spoken and will bring to pass the things that you need done in your life. But you have to get rid of the attitude. Just like you got rid of the attitude of arrogance and stubbornness and pride and everything else when you got born again. When you did, the word spoken made you a new creation. When we get rid of the doubt, the fear, the worry, the stubbornness, the rebellion, the arrogance, the attitude that says, I don't care, and we believe and speak the word, it will move mountains. That's what Jesus said. Because the Spirit and the Word are one. I want to close, but I want you to think about something. And I'll close with it. I don't want to hear it. Listen, I'm almost done. Two minutes. And it's really for her now, boy. The words that you speak, the words that Jesus spoke, when we speak words, because the word because we're the temple of the Holy Spirit, and we speak forth words, you see why it's so important Jesus said to bridle the tongue and watch every word that you say? Because everything we say really should be weighed and measured by whether or not it is acceptable to the Holy Spirit. If it is, His power goes with it. If it's not, you'll suffer for it. If you can get that revelation in your heart to whereby you're a lot more cautious of what you say, you'll find that the, the criticism, the judgmentalism, the gossip, the exaggerations, and all the other things that can happen in the tongue will come under control because every one of those That's not the power of God coming forth in your life. That's the power of the flesh. And the flesh destroys. If we'd weigh our tongues, we'd be a whole lot better off. Because the Spirit and the Word are one. Father, we thank You for this opportunity to minister the Word. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would go with it and impart it to our hearts and minds to whereby we would Seek to use it to build upon that foundation and seek to be more fruitful in our life as Christians. We thank you, Father, for the, the truth about the resurrection of Christ and the revelation of what it has given unto us. We thank you that we have a hope. We have a life after death. We have a day appointed in judgment. But we know that it's something to look forward to, not look with fear, afraid of, because our sins are under the blood. And because Jesus made it, because He lives, we know we will live also. Bless the Word, Father, to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen.